Kirk's attitude was was all positive. I mean, he this was uh, this was a man who believed he could do anything and uh, and was willing to to put it all on the roll of a dice. He always understood the odds and he played them. He embraced risk as part of his whole life. It paid off for Kirk Accordion. He gave money because it was the right thing to do and he didn't want anyone to know. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Baloop. And boy, do we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is a true thought leader. This man has been an investigative journalist for the LA Times for decades, and he's also been a best-selling author of many, many books. I brought him here today to talk about The one book of his that I've read so far, which absolutely fascinated me, it's called The Gambler, How Penniless Dropout Kirk Kerkorian Became the Greatest Dealmaker in Capitalist History. And the author that I'm speaking of is none other than the one, the only, the legendary (laughs) William Rempel. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you very much, Nikki. Nice to be here. Good to have you here, my friend. Well, Bill, why don't we start by having you tell us your backstory? How'd you get to be the great Bill Rempel? <laughs> well, um, I was—I I had parents that uh, uh, got me uh, started in Alaska. Alaska. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I was born in Alaska, and uh, my grandparents were homesteaders in the territory of Alaska, and uh, um, we moved a lot, and that pretty much got me uh, trained to be uh, a journalist that could parachute into anything and uh, and ask a lot of questions. Wow. But I, I, I was at the LA Times for 36 years. 36 years. That's crazy. That's like a lifetime. Yeah, yes. I'm old. <laughs> I'm old. I love it. So what made you decide what got you from alaska to the la times like that's got to be a story in and of itself yeah yeah my my adventurous uh, father was uh, an entrepreneur who uh, made many um many uh, attempts at um at rainbow uh, pots of gold and um, um mostly what it, we did was have adventures at uh, and he was uh, so we uh, like i say we moved a lot we lived all over california and uh, uh, we owned a town at one time. We uh, he was uh, he was sold vacuum cleaners door to door, and I learned a lot about how to uh, get into doors uh, thanks to my dad. That sounds pretty amazing, you know. Um, uh, fathers pass a lot on to their sons, and it's a good thing that he taught you that. So, what made you decide to get into journalism? 
Well, it, uh, I, I'm a, I've been a storyteller since I was a kid. I mean, I told stories to my brothers at night. Just uh, so uh, stories were 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 the were deep in my background, and um, and the thing about journalism was that you actually the stories meant something. They meant uh, uh, you're digging to find out what's right and what's true, and uh, that that gave it a whole new dimension that was more than than uh, just a tale. So um, my work as an investigative reporter for the newspaper took me all over the world, around the country, and uh, it couldn't have been more fun and fulfilling at the same time. That's amazing. That's amazing. So how did you make the transition from, you know, being a full-time investigative reporter to also being a part-time author? Uh, Well, of course, I found stories in the course of my work that led to books the first uh, first couple of books um i i my first book was um the diary of a dictator i got the, dic- the diaries of uh, philippine dictator Phil, uh, 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 ferdinand marcos yes back in years ago and uh, that produced a book uh inside the uh, the mind of a, of a dictator and then I, I got to know a man in witness protection from the Cali cartel in, in Colombia who was, uh, I, I didn't know where he lived and I didn't know how to reach him, but he would reach me from time to time. And over a span of 12 years, we talked and talked and uh, until that story was suitable for a book. And uh, so that was the second book. And then came... Kirk Kikorian, and uh, that was a little different. The um, the editor at HarperCollins, the big publishing house, um, read his obituary in the New York Times, and it had stuff about his uh, aviator heroics during World War II, um, his self-made billionaire status, his richest man in Los Angeles guy, <laughs> the, changing the face of Las Vegas, uh, owning every uh, one point or another, having um, controlling interest in all three uh, individual uh, at separate times, all three of the um, big three American automobile companies. He was, uh, he played, uh, he played hardball um, deal-making with the likes of Ted Turner and uh, Howard Hughes and Michael Milken. So this was somebody that she, she said, well, how can somebody this interesting be someone I've never heard of? And she called me to see if I would be interested in finding out how that happened. And, uh, and Kirk was an amazing character. And the first thing that happened was his, his lawyer said that no one would me. Now here's where uh, telling an investigative reporter, you're not going to help. Um, isn't isn't discouraging it's the sort of the opposite it tells you tells me ah <laughs> i have to work uh but this is fun uh, solving mysteries is part of being an investigative reporter and the mystery of kirk Akorian was a hoot yeah so he was a very private man i got that from reading the book he's not a man who sought the limelight yeah and he well that's the thing he was he was a, he did not he did not write things uh, uh, he did not give interviews. He was very private and and considered um, anything else to be unseemly. 
Yeah. And he lived to the ripe old age of 98, you know? And uh, Yes. <laughs> you know. Well, and by the time I was looking, by the time I was looking into him, of course, he, he was passed, but, but so had all of his family and friends. I mean, in, in 98 years, you know, even even your contemporaries are are ex. Um, they're they're long gone in my, most cases. So, the the realm of sources that could give could provide um, really nice and useful information um, um, was minim had been minimized by time as well. Yeah, he, you know, the way that he told his story, he struck me as in a way, a larger-than-life figure, a, a, an old-fashioned man of honor whose word was his bond. Like, if he said he was going to do something, it was unthinkable for him to change his mind. I got to tell you, what attracted me to Kirk and his story, I mean, beyond his success, was that. I think we live in an age where, unfortunately, men, manhood, masculinity are not really appreciated by society. And when I was growing up, I'm originally from the Middle East. What I was taught by my father and my uncles was, if you're a man, your word's your bond. You 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 give your word, that's it. It doesn't matter what circumstances come up. It doesn't matter that you change your mind. You gave your word. Enough to, I remember that's my it. father growing up would be swearing under his breath in the house. Like, and my mom was going, you know, to him, his name was Napoleon, a regal name. He says, Napoleon, <laughs> Napo. He said, stop swearing in front of all the kids. And she says, I go, Dad, why are you swearing? Why are you mad? He said, because I told so-and-so I'm going to do what, whatever, whatever it was that he told. He says, I don't really want to do it. And I said, then why are you doing it? Why don't you just stop? He said, son, I told him I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to do it. That's it. I don't have to like it, but I'm going to do it. And I'm like, as, as a kid, I never got that. And, and you know, when we came to the West, the idea of not keeping our word was absolutely unthinkable to us. But over time, it got degraded a bit, just living in this culture. But Kirk Kerkorian, like, lived that ethos. And it seems to have been a big part of what what made it, him it, such it a was, success, right? It was. It was exactly. And, and one story that I, I love that uh, shows it, uh, the principle he he accepted or he embraced he wanted all of his people to embrace and so one day he was uh, he, he was selling a casino uh, in in las vegas that um, that his new uh, young his young new executive was handling he was handling the transaction and the the young exec had uh, made a deal with some japanese buyers and went to bed thinking he'd he'd uh, Done a, had a had a very successful negotiation, but in the morning he got a call from another uh, uh, team of, of investors who offered a better deal. So he called Kirk and said, "Here's the thing, I've got a better offer from from these other guys. What should I do?" And Kirk says, "Well, did you did you agree to the deal with the Japanese group?" "Yes, I did." Then why are you even calling me? And he hung up on him. <laughs> it meant it meant we go with the deal you made. So um, if, even if it cost him money, that would so what? You're it's one of the things that that Kirk uh, had as a as a rule of life.
And that is you look out for your reputation. You take care of your health and you take care of your reputation. I'm going to write those down because I actually think that's absolutely fantastic. You take care of your health, you take care of your reputation. And it appears yeah. that um, him taking care of his reputation, maybe in the short run, cost him a little bit of money. But in the long run, that reputation probably bought him, brought him opportunities that would not be available to other people who didn't have that sterling reputation in terms of their trustworthiness, no? Yes, absolutely. And not only that, it, what it what it said to his, his uh, colleagues and partners and friends uh, was that you can trust this man. You didn't see him make any other kind of deals on the side. He, you trusted him. And, and one of the things his, his, uh, his CEOs and various pre and presidents and vice presidents said, is that, you know, Kirk all, took all the chances and he gave everyone the credit. So what happened is that his, that in his, his generosity of spirit is that everyone who worked for him uh, was loyal. They didn't, he didn't have to, like, like some people do these days, you know, demand loyalty. He inspired loyalty. That difference is huge, you know, in a career and a lifetime. Yeah, I think that's absolutely incredible. Um, the other thing that struck me about the story of Kerkorian is that he was a man who took big, bold, ballsy risks. <laughs> like his yes. entire life, not just in business, but, you know, in how he flew those planes during World War II. Amazing stories, yeah. Just like all that, all by itself is a great story. Yeah. So, what is it about this man that you think had him be a risk taker at that level? This shy, quiet, retiring man was maybe the <laughs> biggest, boldest, ballsiest risk taker of all time, and yet he didn't need to go out there and let the world know that he was that. He just was that. He, he lived for the adrenaline rush of a risk. He loved it. It, it, made, him, it made him feel alive. Uh, and he didn't take stupid risks. He didn't take completely um, lame risks. He always understood the odds. And he played them. And, if, uh, you know, and as a pilot, you... you, <laughs> you, you you, you don't want to play too many uh, long odds, but uh, when he, what he was doing as a in the um, in World War II, or, um, he joined the RAF uh, Ferry Command, and they flew uh, freshly made planes from the factories of, of the U.S. and Canada. Uh, he was based in Montreal, and he would fly these new freshly minted uh, fighters and bombers across the Atlantic. Uh, back when there was no uh, no polar route, there were no um, navigational guides along the way. Uh, they flew by night, so they had the stars to guide them. They flew um, in hops, if necessary, from from um, uh, Nova Scotia or or Newfoundland up to uh, Greenland and Iceland, and then over to Scotland. But if the winds were right, 
you could take a chance on flying straight across to uh, Scotland, and Kirk loved that. He'd get the uh, the, the the jet stream, and they, they didn't call it that then, but they, they called it the Hurricane Express. But the winds were blowing fast, 70, 80 miles an hour uh, at, at flight altitude. And so you could cut some time and stops off your trip. And he would take those risks with his life in hanging in the balance. And uh, a couple of times that was a close call. But but that was a it wasn't a dumb risk. It was a smart risk as long as the winds were blowing. And he did that in business. He did that in gambling. He always knew the odds and played those at the same time. So it's it's an informed risk taker. And this is a man who basically went from being, as you said, penniless, dropout oh, yeah. school. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's how penniless he was. As a kid, uh, he lived in uh, Cal- up in the, uh, the Central Valley of California, where he was born. He was born in Fresno. His his father was an entrepreneur. He had a lot of land that that he that he bought and and lost to um, to uh, to bankruptcy. And and uh, the last property they owned was a, a ranch uh, that was repossessed. And Kirk was literally. Uh, forced to move, the whole family moved to Southern California with nothing because they'd just lost everything. And so they had to start over and they would, you know, and and again, they were like like my, my childhood. <laughs> we moved all the time. And like mine, my father moved a lot of times because we were out of money and had to move into, uh, I, I like to say we, we um, in good times, we moved in broad daylight. Other times we moved, you know, under cover of darkness. So um, <laughs> the same was true of Kirk and his family. So I, I did identify with him, I have to say. I never became the billionaire, <laughs> but I do know the penniless side of it. <laughs> and his father it, it was was you know, doing, uh, trying to make business deals. And he was, a, I think he was a produce. He would buy produce and bring it into the city um, and sell it. Uh he, for a time, he the father had a trucking company. He, he acquired a, a truck that they could take produce from Southern California up to the markets of um, the Central Valley, and vice versa, bring the bring produce down. So um, it was always uh, risky, and it was always uh, a, a case of we're on the edge of edge of making a fortune, and on the edge at the same time on the cusp of being penniless again. That was risk built right into his life. And so he learned to live with it. And he learned to, re- he re- came to realize poverty doesn't kill you <laughs> if if you're still able to work, if you're still able to get up in the next day and go out and try again. And and, and so he, he embraced risk as part of his whole life. And it was, um, it paid off for Kirk Akorian. Yeah, that's better that's than awesome. for most people. Yeah, he um, he was a risk taker. He got into business, and he was successful. And he, he just kept going. This is a man who would... found a way to become a billionaire, and he did it. He did it without connections, without having uh, a network of people around him. He made it all happen by himself. 
I'm just fascinated by this man and his story of success. How could someone replicate Kirk Kerkorian's record of success in 2023? Well, I, I think the fundamentals remain the same. Um, be, you know, be, uh, be smart enough to, well, he, he has some other rules. He, Kirk's idea of running a good business was you always buy, you, you hire the best people. You get the experts in whether it's gambling or um, airlines uh, or what, whatever, automobile manufacturer, whatever his business, he always hired the best people. And then, then having done that, you let them manage it. His idea was that he would be responsible for the big picture. He would look at you know what's what's what are the challenges we want or what do we want to go with this with this business? What do we want to do in a big sense? But he let man his 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 key managers manage, and of course that fostered this incredible loyalty. Um, and and he shared you know like I said before he he gave them credit for for his success. That just does wonders for the uh, uh, for the tightness of the uh, people around you to just look out for you and your business, and That's, it worked yeah. all the time. Yeah, he was a man who put people ahead of uh, of money. My father was an entrepreneur as well, God rest his soul, and he used to say to me all the time, "Son, life is about people; it's not about money. Take care of people, and uh, God will take care of you." And it looked like that. Yeah, yeah. That was yeah. something that Kirk Kerkorian believed uh, right down deep in his bones. Uh, he, he believed it. He uh, lived it. Um, and he was so, uh, at the same time, so incredibly generous with his wealth and with his, his opportunities yes. and time. It, his, his, um, the thing was, he, 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 he was giving away millions of dollars as long as people didn't give him credit, he didn't want credit. He felt he had to hit this thing that any charity, if you if you give charity and you get to get your name on a building or to get a statue of yourself, that's not charity. It's a transaction. Yes. He gave money because it was the right thing to do, and he didn't want anyone to know. Yes, let alone give him credit. He was just opposed to that. At at some point. In his life, he, he his generosity got to be so great that he had to actually set up a foundation um, to to manage it, to manage his, his generosity, his benevolence. And that's when uh, there was a deadly earthquake uh, in Armenia that was uh, on a scale like the current one in uh, in, in, in in Turkey. Yeah, and and uh, Kirk made it set up essentially an airlift of of food uh, med, uh, medication um, uh, rebuilding supplies that went on for for decades uh, yeah. and, and it, so it was it turned out it was fa just fabulously um, uh, needed and generous um, but he he in in life he poured about a billion dollars into charity and then when he died he left those the whatever was left a couple billion plus uh to charity so the man didn't didn't just talk the talk he he did it he he uh he was a man of generosity of on a scale just not seen by, by most people 
honestly, it's 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 pretty wild. He um, he also got to know some characters during his time <laughs> on on the planet, right? So he was um, a pilot for you know mafioso Bugsy Siegel, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he gave Bugsy his last ride. <laughs> Yeah, he gave Bugsy his last his last ride in an airplane. Yeah, um, not on not on purpose, just the way it worked out. <laughs> but, yeah, um, Kirk was uh, Kirk's one of it. He loved Las Vegas. He loved Las Vegas early on, and uh, once he got back from the war, he had had a little bit of a nest egg from the the flights over the dangerous flights over to Scotland. He'd get a thousand dollars each time. And uh, for each, each, and and so by the time the war ended, he had enough to to start a little um, charter airline uh, with with a couple of planes in uh, in the L.A. area. And of course, then in, in that one, he did he spent a uh, he spent a, a few days uh, camping out in the deserts of Arizona with John Wayne, the actor, who was uh, was a scout of his, right? Yeah, they became friends. He was, he was Wayne was scouting a, a movie uh, location and uh, for his very first uh, directorship on a movie, and Kirk was his pilot. And uh, they would go out and you know and hop around to different campsites, and uh, that was that he, he considered that a real treat. He he, he hated to be um, he Kirk didn't like celebrity for himself at all, but he did. Uh, um, have a lot of celebrity friends, including you know Frank Sinatra and uh, and, and and so many actually. Yeah, so he became friends with the great John Wayne, and he was friends yeah. with Frank yeah, Sinatra. Was... Yeah, and, and at the time, Wayne was the biggest actor in the world, right? I mean, that was that was yeah, absolutely part of his fame, where he was a global icon, and uh, he was indeed. Yeah. The Armenians consider Armenians of uh, of, of uh, who benefited from his largesse after the earthquake just couldn't help themselves. Once, <laughs> well, after he died, they built they put up a statue of Kirk Corian, and uh, and Kirk would have probably cringed at the thought. But it is it is the um, such a, a tribute to their to their love and appreciation of the man that uh, it's it's it, it's is there forever so kirk um kirk's airlift to armenia you wrote in your book that it was the biggest such airlift since the berlin airlift of 4849 right yes without any other um, a challenge whatsoever it was huge um and it ultimately involved uh, everything i mean it, it went from being a a, an earthquake relief to uh, to Armenian reconstruction, uh, building materials, and Kirk finally went to, uh, went over to uh, to Armenia to, to see for himself, and it was uh, you know his his uh, I think it was his only trip there, and uh, he was just treated like a like a. a, a a, a uh, like a John Wayne or, you know, or yeah. Frank Sinatra, he was the celebrity, you know, and it made him uncomfortable. An artist brought in a a, 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 um, 
a, a sculpture of his of Kirk Gregorian, a bust of his head, and Kirk <laughs> Kirk immediately bought it so nobody would ever see it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's but, but he yeah he 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 was um, he was very but he was you know he, he was an easygoing guy unless uh, unless you were uh, un, 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 or dishonest with him that would uh, that would cut it. That, that 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 would tick him off yeah so it would he had a role to play in um setting up andre agassi's father mike it, it, mm. to be able to really take care of his family and 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 help him get andre to the point where he became one of the greatest tennis stars of all time right well, yeah, he, he, he was very important in uh, Mike Agassi's life. He gave him, um, he, he he gave he gave him a job, and he had a um, in in Las Vegas. He had uh, he worked for for Kirk at the uh, at the original MGM Grand that had a big fire, and even though and it, it burned down, they had to rebuild the the hotel. But Kirk was doing that. He he kept. He kept uh, Mike Agassi on the company payroll, even though the hotel wasn't open, because it was important to him that uh, someone as loyal as Mike would uh, would he would return the loyalty with his own, and uh, kept kept the family uh, kept the family fed and and uh, in, in their home, and uh, even though it was uh, just devastating uh, financially to Kurt to do to that, what happened to the hotel. Yeah, that's uh, that's what blows me away about this man. He lived his life in a particular way, and it looks like God looked upon him with favor and said, "Yes, you <laughs> will <laughs> yeah. be blessed yeah. beyond yeah. beyond most." Kirk's attitude was was all positive. I mean, he this was uh, this was a man who believed he could do anything, and uh, and was willing to to put it all on the roll of a dice, you know, it was, uh, uh, when he, when he, he made his first million dollars, it was when a, uh, the, the Studebaker company bought his, bought out his little charter airline and they paid him a million dollars and asked him to keep running it. And, uh, and he took that million dollars and Put it down. Put it immediately. Put it on a piece of property in Las Vegas. It was not very um, promising. It had no uh, street frontage. It was. It was just off of the, the strip, back out out in the in, in the boonies of the strip, even in those days. But it had no frontage, and so he had to do some trading, where he traded bigger pieces of property in the back in the back of the property but in order to get some frontage and and as soon as he had pulled that little thing off which was a no no small matter because it would it involved a lot of persuasion and a lot of different people um but then came to town a uh, a developer from atlanta who wanted to develop something that would be called caesar's palace and the best property in town at that moment was Kirk's property that previously didn't even have any frontage on the, on the highway. So presto, he had turned, he turned his million dollar. It just, the whole thing went on the roll of, uh, you know, went, went, went on the table, essentially that whole million went into 
let's let's see what we can do with it, make it do. And it turned into he became the landlord for his palace, and it was the beginning of his march through uh, through Las Vegas as a as a major player, as a casino owner, and he was involved yeah. in giving folks like Sheldon Adelson and Steve Wynn a leg up uh, through their march to success too, right? Yeah, he was a big fan of uh, Steve Wynn. He thought he was brilliant. And what he was doing in his in Steve's early stuff in Vegas was Kirk really admired. So when he got a chance to buy out Steve, uh, it was it was a just a, a a big deal for him. Now, Kirk's Kirk's people, his lawyers and uh, financial people, uh, expected that he would uh, insist on a no commit no compete clause with with Steve so that he wouldn't wouldn't uh, build across the street or something and Kirk said oh no 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 I will not do that just in fact I want him to build across the street competition is what drives this competition helps us all competition will make Las Vegas a much better place and sure enough so he, he refused to do a non-compete clause and Steve Wynn built across the across the boulevard and everybody made fortunes. They sure did. Kirk was right. Yeah, uh, that, that that's pretty darn incredible. That's pretty darn incredible. Well, you know, that's the generosity of spirit and, and uh, eagerness to compete that that just defined him uh, and all his all of his life. And of course, he was a, an athlete who was competitive. You know, as a kid, he was a boxer, rifle right Kirkorian. He got yeah. the, he got the, that was one of his most precious possessions. Was the nickname some reporter gave him back in the back in the thirties? Wow, um, you know. So, um, and he, he he discovered tennis with Mike Agassi. Mike Agassi gave him some early lessons, and and so it takes picks up tennis. In the um, in, in his forties, and plays by in his eighties, he was playing uh, seniors on the senior circuit into his mid eighties. So it was uh, tennis was became part of his life, and he he loved it. It was like to him, it was like boxing. It was one on one. Of course, he it, it, usually uh, you it, it, you could play one on one in tennis, and 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 also in the boxing ring, and it's and it's it's very much. Um, individualist uh, game in that in that sense, and he loved the competition. He loved to compete in tennis. He loved to compete in boxing. He loved to compete in business, um, and uh, he relished it. It wasn't. It was what drove him. Yeah, that's that's another amazing quality of his. You know, I've, I've been taking notes on some of the things that uh, you said were his rules of life, and. Yeah, the three that have jumped out at me is you take care of your health and you take care of your reputation. Hire the best people and let them manage uh, things, and take care of the big picture. And then competition makes us all better, and that's what makes us all a fortune. Mm -hmm. I think those are really, really fantastic quotes, and I'm uh, I'm grateful not only to have read this book, but to get a chance to interview the author and to pick your brain about <laughs> the things you learned is is a real thrill as far as I'm concerned don't worry about the small stuff think big that also defined him. I mean, you know he, he when he went into um 
went into the his first his first uh, casino and hotel in Las Vegas. He built the biggest in the in in all the world, the biggest hotel in the world. And when he when he changed when he uh, built his second hotel, he built the biggest hotel in the world. And then the third time he did it again. So the grand the the MGM Grands each time he built one of them was the biggest yet. So. Big wasn't just an idea; it was or a goal. I mean, of tendency. It was it was his thing to be think big, uh, do do things that really matter, and uh, and go ahead and bet it all. Yeah, I, I like do things that really matter, and I like go ahead and bet <laughs> it all. I think it's good. So, yeah. so Bill, if there. Is one thing you want to leave my listener with in terms of why it's worth their time to invest a bunch of hours in reading your book and getting to know Kirk Kerkorian? <laughs> what would it be? I, I think I think the the thing that struck me the most about him was his generosity, and and I mean that not as a just as a as a donor of. Uh, but as his generosity with everybody uh, of his, of his spirit and his uh, and time and and um, and his hopes, and he um, and the th- and and the fact that he never thought about himself. I mean, it, it, it's 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 an amazingly um, consistent pattern in his life that. Uh, um, he did. He ne- he did. He did not consider himself a smart man. He did not consider himself a um, um, a genius of, of any kind. Um, he did consider himself lucky, and he considered he considered life a big crapshoot. Um, and he it and he had fun. He loved it, and so go out there and have fun and. Uh, uh, and I had fun digging into the tale of his story. Um, even though people, there, there were people that, that uh, thought I shouldn't do it, uh, most people who knew him found me. They wanted to talk to about him. They, the whole world seemed to be uh, fans of Kirk Akorian. And why that was, you can find out in the book. It's, um, you'll see it in his, in his generosity of... of uh, spirit more than in his generosity of money um and he's a i think he's he's a a model for anybody who's going to be in business or or for that matter just wants to have a a a healthy life amen amen brother so listener the name of the book is the gambler how penniless dropout kirk kerkorian became the greatest deal maker in capitalist history by william c It's a great book. Um, if you're watching this on video, here's what it looks like. Pick up a copy of this. Uh, check it out. You know, for whatever it's worth, um, you ought to find uh, some enterprising filmmaker and uh, <laughs> get him to option the rights for the book to make a movie about this man's life. It's worthy of a movie, 100%. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know a couple of movie makers uh, myself. Uh, yeah, well, you got my it. number. 
<laughs> awesome, 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 awesome. But I really think this should be made into a movie. It is a fantastic book. And what strikes me um, about you, Bill, is you you're a bit of a gambler yourself. You know, you had an entrepreneurial <laughs> father. You got into the world of journalism. You've written a number of books. Uh, and um, this particular book seems to be your, so far at least, your magnum opus. And I think that uh, if anyone's listening to this and they've wanted to write a book and they've wanted to use that book to help define themselves in business, I think that's a powerful thing to do. And I'm just wondering if you can maybe close off by giving our listeners some advice on what they can do to get the right stories out of themselves in such a way that could make a name for themselves. Well, yeah, I don't know about the making a name for yourself, but the fact is uh, stories stories do tell a lot about you. And uh, stories where you go through conflict and, uh, and, and um, the conflict of poverty, the conflict of, of competition, there's, there's so many kinds of, of conflict that we all go through. And if you concentrate on how those were managed, how those key moments are managed, you, there's a story in everybody. And uh, de- just look, look deep into the conflicts and how you survived them, uh, overcame them, um, uh, thrived from them. I mean, the fact is, conflict makes you better. Uh, competition does. makes you better. And and my my experience moving constantly it was a miserable thing for a kid to have to change schools every year, but it made me it made me um, a, a more effective reporter in in strange situations. It just I, if I ever write a memoir, it'd be I learned everything I learned about journalism. I learned from a vacuum cleaner salesman. So um, you can <laughs> yeah, find a memoir. I, I definitely buy it and read it. You're a very engaging writer, and you, you, you tell a great story. Um, I uh, I ordered a copy of your book about the cartels, and I'm looking forward to reading that. Uh, and I just got to say, it's been a real thrill, man, to have you here on the show and to be able to have this conversation with you. Uh, I, I, I loved it. I enjoyed every minute of it. God bless you, man. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Nikki. Bye-bye. And listener, it if you want to find out more about Bill Rempel, um, I'd say go to Amazon and type in William C. Rempel. Look at what his books are that are available there. Definitely order The Gambler. And if you're looking for gifts to give to people, this is a great book that makes a great gift. You know, So I'm actually going to be picking up a number of copies myself for some of my clients and handing the this book over to them because I really believe it's going to make a difference for them. And it it makes a really great gift. It's the kind of book that reads like the best novels, yet it's a, it's, it's a book that's true. It's about a real person and that makes it all the more valuable. And it contains some deep lessons that you can use to make your life better as a man, as a woman, as a businessman, as a businesswoman, Highly recommend this book. Highly recommend Bill Rempel and his work in general. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's amazing guest, the one and only Bill Rempel, 
Go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or wherever you happen to listen to this podcast. And if you liked it, give us a like, give us a rating, give us a review, and share it with a friend that you think would enjoy it as well. Until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.